Okay. Well, close enough. Let's get started, okay? My name is Vince Martinelli. I'm the head of product and marketing at Right Hand Robotics. Uh, and I'll just mention we are at booth 9826. So if you hear something today you find interesting and you want to come chat with us, uh, please come by. If you follow along this wall out into the front hall there, you'll eventually come to our booth, 9826. Today I'm going to talk a little bit about you know, factors that you need to think about. If you're trying to get a little bit ahead of the game and uh, uh, increase the automation in your uh, fulfillment system, we'll talk about why you might want to do that. But you might want to look at robotic piece picking. And, uh, and again, I'm sure uh, the fact that you're here says you have some interest in this, but maybe you haven't bought the first robot yet, maybe you haven't done a project, you know, it's still pretty new. So uh, we'll try to uh, explain some of the things we've learned in the past few years because we're a company that about three years ago introduced probably one of the first piece-picking robots that can handle individual items, such as an e-commerce fulfillment. And uh, now we've got a few years' experience. So we're sharing that with people. What have we learned from our projects so that if you're starting to go down that path, uh, how can you think about it? Hopefully save you some pain and, uh, and maybe some time. So one thing I'll talk about, and, and we'll mention during the talk, and again, many of you probably walked around the show a bit. Uh, we're from Right Hand Robotics. We have a system. Guess what? There's other piece picking solutions and systems out there. Uh, so if you're an end user, a retailer, uh, a 3PL, whatever, and you're thinking about using this technology, good news is you can look at quite a few options. Maybe more options than you really want to think about. I don't know. But anyways, out of that group, hopefully you can find you know, that short list of two or three. You can kind of work through and figure out what's right for you and then go down the path. Uh, so we're not the only ones, we're not alone. It's a good sign, you know, when you're, when you're a new company, a startup, and I've been with a couple in my life, if you enter a market and nobody else is trying to get in, you know, you start to worry. Maybe, maybe we're building the wrong thing, maybe nobody wants it, whatever. Peace picking robot, it feels like the time is here. We did a, uh, uh, we were asked by one of the robotics industry magazines late last year to make a prediction for 2020. And I said, five, 10 years from now, we'll look back at 2020 they say these piece-picking machines kind of turn the corner. They start to be deployed in small-scale, mid-scale. Uh, people use them every day in production. And you know, you'll look back. It's always easier to look back and find the turning point. Uh, you know, my own history, uh, I joined a company in 2007 that was building a robot for warehouses. Uh, our founder had been at it for three or four years. He struggled to raise money, had to beg friends and family you know, to, to, to join and help out with the company had his dad working, his sister, his brother-in-law, you know. And uh, so I, I joined the company, this guy I had known for a long time. I joined in 2007, we had one customer. And we called on customer after customer, we went to conferences like this. And people said, no, nah, I don't think so, I don't think those robots, that's not a good idea in a warehouse. Uh, you know, it's got this problem, that problem, never gonna work. <clears throat> so we won a few customers. We sold systems to Staples, Walgreens, Gap, Zappos started to build a little track record. It was pretty good. Eventually, the company got bought by Amazon. And some of you have heard of it. It's called Kiva Systems, right? So I can tell you that 13 years ago at this trade show or ProMat, no one thought that would ever happen, right? But piece picking now, of course, that spawned now. There's robots everywhere, right? You can't have a warehouse without a robot anymore, you would think, if you walked around the show, right? So it's a whole new world. It's entirely different. And you know, piece picking is actually probably a little farther along than we were at Kiva in 2007. But uh, you know, anyways, I, I'm betting with my job and career that 
uh, something like that's going to happen again. And today I'll share some information with you about that. Um, so there's a transition, though. If you have manual buildings, you have existing facilities, how do you cut piece-picking robots in? That's always tricky. But you can't go build a giant new warehouse with all these robots if you haven't tested and tried it out anywhere, right? So that's a step in the process. Uh, they're becoming more plug-and-play. What do I mean by that? There's software APIs to talk to the robots. Uh, it's not a real complex integration with WMS, but it's work. And if you don't build your own WMS, if you're relying on a third party for WCS, WMS, whatever, um, you know, there's some uh, change that has to happen there. Someone's got to bite that off and do the work. It's not zero. Um, so, all right, I'm going to jump ahead. Oh, and then we'll talk a little bit about even if it's a great idea, even if there's an ROI payback, even if your engineering team in your company is all behind this, you've got to sell it to operations, you've got to sell it to finance and other departments, right? So it's a classic thing. Again, lots of organizations do this well, but not everybody does. So you've got to get out in front of it, sell the concept, sell the project across your organization to make it work. That's true, again, whether it's us or any of the other robots in the building, quite frankly. Okay. So every presentation, uh, I think these days, about automation of warehouses starts with some version of the story about e-commerce and um, ordering things mobile, two-day delivery, same-day delivery, next-hour delivery, grocery delivery, right, on and on. So as customers uh, count on their retailers and grocers and, and everyone in this supply chain to ship the items they need or want with great convenience, you know, any product, anytime, anywhere, at speed, you know, this is how people relate to brands, how they relate to the retail companies of the world now. And if you drop the ball and aren't executing on the supply chain side better than everyone else, then the customer is going to look somewhere else, again, especially if it's a, a commodity item that they can buy a lot of different places, right? Um, so, you know, that's the burden on the folks. Again, many of you here, I'm sure, your practitioners of supply chain, material handling, and, and this is the challenge to you guys. So in, ba in the background, behind all the fancy uh, marketing stuff of the retailers, the, the job is increasingly on the supply chain execution to win customer loyalty, okay? Let's see. Well, all right. That's the danger of updating your slide deck just before the presentation. So I had a nice slide there, and it was going to talk about a thought experiment that I started doing recently. I asked myself, so it's not quite this slide, so you have to um, give me a moment here to explain. So. Retail uh, e-commerce last year was about $3.5 trillion worldwide, okay? In 1995 is when it started. It was zero. So zero to $3.5 trillion over 25 years. Huge growth, right? And there's projections out for the next few years, 17 18% growth, you know? And it varies by retailers. Some guys are doubling. Some guys are going 50%, whatever. So I, I did the thought experiment, two, two parts. One of them, I said, man, I wonder when that's going to flatten out. When will it plateau? How big could it get? And what's limiting that? You know, one thing that limits that is the ability to deliver items one at a time to every house and every uh, locker and every doorstep and every uh, uh, storefront in the country or in the world. But anyways, I did the math, and if you, if you take a growth rate of about 15% and just keep going to 2030 and 4% for retail, which is about where these things are trending, um, you get to a number like $17 trillion e-commerce becomes $17 trillion, more than 4x what it is today. Um, 
compared to today's worldwide retail, that's about 70%. So if you stop for a minute and say, imagine if 70% of everything sold today had to go through the direct-to-consumer model, how would you handle that? What kind of automation might you need? You know, you're going to run out of people. There's the challenge that uh, there's just not enough people. The productivity of piece picking is less than pallet handling and case handling. So you run out of people to do the job. So if there's pressure today, it's only going to get more intense over time. That's why we think, again, and it, it's a little bit self-fulfilling. Yes, I'm in the business of promoting and selling piece picking robots. But because I believe in this uh, driver, this, dem this demand, this market dynamic that is, uh, you know, we're not controlling. It's kind of inevitable right now. So anyways, so then we come back to the warehouse. And we look at a warehouse as inbound processes and outbound processes. And very similar to the telecom network 50 years ago, in between zones of automation where you can connect things and have a flow of product or information, there's a switchboard operator. Except in a warehouse, we call them an inductor, or we call them a picker, or an ASRS team member associate or something, right? But there's someone who stands there, items show up, they take them out of this container, they put them in that container. They make the switchboard connection in the warehouse. And robotic piece picking machines now are, are sort of the solid state equivalent uh, of a switch in a telecom, a smart switch in a, in a network. Why is that? Because now without any human intervention, the items show up in the bin, the robot gets a message to pick, it picks, it places, it sends a confirmation back to the host software system, and the whole system just keeps flowing. So again, 10, 15 years from now, will this enable new fulfillment models? I don't know. You know, uh, in the telecom world, you couldn't stream a video tonight and watch it, uh, you know, watch a two-hour feature movie on your phone if you didn't have automated switching and connections all across the network, right? If you needed to call up the switchboard operator, none of that would work. So services upon services grow as the whole fulfillment model becomes more automated. Okay. So now let's talk about a little, bring this thing back down to earth a little bit and say, okay, you're thinking about buying a, a robot to pick items and handle items in your warehouse. <clears throat> so a handful of things we'll talk about. You know, first is why are you doing it? Again, I mentioned you're going to have to drive organizational alignment. For me, again, having been through this Kiva and now right hand, many projects you go through, and early on you say, hey, there's going to be an integration piece with the software. And some guy on the material handling engineering side of the house says, no, no, I don't want to bring the software guys in yet. They'll kill the whole thing. They'll raise a stink. They'll say it's going to cost a fortune and take a lot of time. But you're like, well, they're going to say that anyways. They're going to say that after we've worked for six or 12 months on the pilot and, and hopefully hit the milestones, and then we'll hit a brick wall, right? So again, the earlier you get out in front of that, the better. So it better have a good business reason why it's being done in the first place. And it helps to then focus in on some painful part of the uh, flow in the warehouse where the robot can make a difference. If you don't, you have a hard time gaining support. And we, you know, we can help you think about that, but some of that has to be done in time, inside your organization. <clears throat> we talk about when, when you're evaluating the different robots you see around the show uh, to, uh, this week, what's the range and the rate and the reliability of the system? A year or so ago, we, we published a white paper because we said, hey, if we're in your shoes and thinking about buying these things, this is what's important, because it translates into throughput, translates into uh, uptime and performance and availability, all the things you care about. Uh, and, then, and then whether the supplier is integrating the pieces into a machine or trying to sell just one component or another. So again, if I'm a retailer and I run a number of warehouses and I'm looking to 
the next generation of systems I want to deploy, someone says, I, I have a nice gripper. Well, we have a nice gripper. Again, you can see it in the booth. It's got suction, it's got fingers, it handles items gently. But if we show up and try to sell the gripper to people who run warehouses, they don't have a machine to hook it onto just yet. <clears throat> they can't use it. If we sell software that uses vision sensors and can tell items in a box or whatever, but we don't have an arm and a gripper and safety systems and everything else, it's not terribly useful. So again, there are companies who offer pieces of the puzzle, in which case you may have to defer to some other integrators to put it all together for you. Uh, and there's other guys like us, we're not the only ones, who put the pieces together so it's not a do-it-yourself project, it's an integrated machine, and then someone owns responsibility for delivering a throughput rate, uh, an error rate, uh, overall quality, reliability, everything. Okay, that's important. And then whether you're doing brownfield or greenfield designs, it, again, it's very hard if I put myself in your shoes, and again, there was a time where I, I did some warehouse design after we got bought by Amazon, I helped design the new warehouses, and that was a lot of fun. But you know, you say to yourself, uh, even there, we were looking at how do you put this new Kiva machine into the Amazon template building? It's like a heart and lung transplant. It's like buying a, a new uh, uh, processor chip and putting it on the old motherboard, you know? You had to rethink everything, right? So again, if you're starting down the path with piece-picking robots, it'd be hard for me to say to you, oh yeah, go commit the new building you've been thinking about, a $100 million investment, just load it up with robots and let them rip, you know? That'll be exciting. Now, I think you've got to try it first in some existing facilities. And, and again, keeping in mind that they probably haven't been designed with robots in mind. They may not be optimum testing and proving grounds, but it's where you're going to get firsthand experience and your uh, operations teams will learn how to use them before you try to go to the next step. Um, okay, so those are some things on the thought process internal that, again, uh, guys like us and this consulting companies maybe can help people think it through, but I think you have to do those steps before you jump in with, with any of the piece-picking products out there, or any of the partners, any of the companies. Once you get to that, now the next level of things is going to be the focus of the, most of the rest of the pitch here. So what's your item set? How do you intend to use it? Workflows, physical space, um, and then the software side. Now, so first off, I mentioned there's a lot of robots out in the, uh, in the world here today. We, um, you know, part of the nature of the Modex training sessions, it's an educational session. So much as it pains me to put other uh, robot pictures up there, there they are. Um, so this is a, you know, kind of random sampling. It's not, uh, you know, again, some of these guys are here this week, some aren't. Uh, ours up in the left is show it integrated with the Element Logics version of AutoStore. So uh, we've got a couple partnerships with people who can take the piece-picking robot, marry it with the ports on the auto store, and again, start to automate that, that whole uh, outbound picking process, which is a nice thing. We believe that, again, anyone who wants to commercialize piece-picking machines at scale, we think has to be able to plug, play, and work with many different WMS, WCS vendors, system integrators, and material handling providers. So we try to be very open and flexible in that regard. Anyway, so there's a bunch of guys here, different takes on solving the same type of problem. Again, across all of us this year, I have no doubt there, you will be able to say, piece-picking robots have picked hundreds of millions of items around the world. I don't know that it'll get to a billion items this year. And, and you know, revenue-wise, a billion items is 10 to $25 billion, right? So it's still kind of small. We're at the front end of, uh, of the adoption of the technology. But it's starting to really prove in 
You won't be buying the first one ever. Uh, you know, we're, we're past that stage already and rapidly going beyond that. There's more, okay? So if you weren't happy with the first six or eight, there's a few more. So again, you got lots of choices. Uh, some like Magazino you see up here in the lower uh, part of the right, uh, they focused on picking, picking shoe boxes. And I know, to my knowledge, and I'm not endorsing them, they seem like good guys, we talk to them now and again. They may be the only guys really tackling the shoe box picking problem of how to get shoe boxes off shelves and get them flowing downstream without people walking up there. So if you're focused on shoe picking, I can honestly say out of all of these guys, as far as I know, they might be the, the head of the class right now, okay? Because it's mobile and it's picking the box right off the shelf. It's kind of cool. Uh, but anyways, there's lots of different flavors. Um, some like the gray-orange. I, I didn't have a picture of their picking robot, but they have a Kiva-like system with some picking added to it, uh, and there's others. But again, each one may not be the right fit for you. Uh, some guys, like the guys at Soft, are doing a lot of things around food processing and and agriculture, uh, not agriculture, but produce picking and handling. It's the nature of what they do uh, really well, I think. Okay, so it depends on uh, what you need to do. All right, let's talk about item set. So today, robots can pick lots of things. And again, I'm talking about robots used in supply chain for e-commerce. Of course, robots pick uh, car parts in automotive factories and so on. One of the big differences there is the, the part the robot's going to pick is the same part every day. It's going to be presented in the same orientation, the same position. And so the task for the robot's relatively simple. I go to this point in space, I have an end effector designed only for that part, and I you know, grab it or mate with it and move it to another fixed position every time, all the time. There's never anything changing, nothing's in the way, and so on and so forth. But picking items out of a bin, again, if they're stored in an ASRS tote, they're loosely arranged, they come down, this same object that I'm holding my hand could be positioned this way or that way or this way. And somehow you gotta reach in and pick it every time. When you start working at a company like Right Hand Robotics, not that I uh, walk around every day thinking about how I'm touching and picking up everything that I see, but you think about it a lot more because building a machine that can do it, and, and again, one part of my job is the product management side of the house, thinking about features and functions, what should we build? And you realize that you know, setting an item down like this very gently is different than just tossing it. And picking items up that are in any orientation, we do it so quickly without thinking when we reach into things and grab them. You have to take like eight steps back and say, oh, the robot doesn't necessarily know there's a container there unless it can see it, perceive it, and understand there's a wall of a tote. So it can't smash the hand into the container. We would never do that, right? If you reach into a container, you don't hit the tote, right? But the robot, there's a lot of software just to make it do something simple like that. Another example is if the tote is empty, if the ASRS presents the tote, there's been an inventory mistake, it's empty, and the robot's commanded to pick an item, it's really useful if the robot can decide that it's empty and tell the WMS that that tote is empty with a high confidence. Now. The WCS knows what to do about that, because it does happen even in human systems, right? But if the robot can't do that, and they, they, they're not born that way, robots don't do that out of the box, right? It's a lot of work to make them do that. So anyways, items are important. We cover uh, lots of product categories, and again, somewhere out there, there are people building robots, I'm sure, to move kayaks around, or bicycles, and other uh, odd-shaped giant things. That tends not to be the focus of this talk, the kind of things we're doing, and frankly, 
90% of the volume of stuff that moves in e-commerce looks a lot like this. Some other items that are difficult for robots to pick, items that are tangled together. Uh, I use the example sometimes of everyone has a drawer at home where you've thrown a bunch of extension cords, and if you pull the drawer out and try to reach in and grab one, you know, you, you get two others uh, kind of snagged with it, right? So items that snag or tangle, it's hard for people to pick, it's really hard for a robot to deal with. Um, items where the packaging is not sealed. So if I can grab the bag, but when I pick it up, the item's gonna fall out. A person can deal with that, but it's a robot, again, really hard thing to do. And finally, certain kind of porous complex shapes, they can be grabbed. Sometimes it's hard to get them singly without getting the one next to it, because they kind of interweave into one another. They're tricky things to pick. So we put together some guidelines. Now, my CEO wants me to say that this doesn't mean we can never pick anything outside of these bounds. But these, in my opinion, and, and what I see us and other people doing, pretty good set of guidelines. So if the products you need to pick and fulfill and you're trying to automate this process, if they fall into these guidelines, if they're more than a couple kilograms, yes, you can probably do it. But um, so again, now you start to get into and you say, what are the items that are more than a couple kilograms in a warehouse? They often are flowing a different path uh, than things that go through ASRS and sorters and so on and so forth, right? When you get up to things that are boxed like a toaster oven, you, you wouldn't pick it with a robot that basically has one hand. So another way to think about this, we and others are building one-handed robots, ours is a right-hand robot, but things that a person could see and grab with one hand, the robot's gonna be pretty good at. As soon as you say, oh, that's a two-hand lift, or I might have to transition my hands as I pick it, hold it, and move it, it gets more complicated for the robot, okay? So we can pick pretty small things down to like the size of lipstick or chapstick. We can pick things like a big uh, a board game in a box uh, and, and some heavy dense things as well. This is about where it is. We look at, as we go forward, uh, again, things like uh, picking jugs of milk, which is more like four to five kilos, right? So uh, today, we've, tried to not, we've decided not to focus on that just because it's, a, again, kind of a limited space and a, and a very particular item. Um, another philosophy that different picking companies might take is do we build a general purpose gripper that picks almost everything, or do we have a lot of specialized grippers? And jugs of milk might be one where some kind of hook, for example, if you said on this line, I'm gonna run jugs of milk all day, you might have a special gripper for picking milk. It's a different enough item. Okay, let's switch gears and talk about the operation model. So we just said there's definitely items that robots pick for certain types of businesses and industries. That may be a huge percentage of what you need to pick and flow through your warehouse operation. However, there may be items down at the bottom that don't lend themselves well to robotic picking. They may be really fragile. Glass items, especially if they're unpackaged. Uh, flowers, if you happen to be shipping flowers, and so on. So in the design of the system and as how you decide to incorporate robotic piece picking, you need to think about your flows, right? Um, today, if you have an existing facility and all items flow the same way, you may have to think about how do I send those items that the robot can handle? I can look at my master item list, do a dim weight scan. You can talk to some of our people about categories and classes of items that are pickable by package type and so on and so forth. You have some knowledge. We can go through that list. We have some customers where we've approved over 250,000 SKUs for robotic picking. 
We look at the volume that that represents in the building. Sometimes it's really high. It can be 90%, but it may not be 100%. So as soon as it's not 100%, you've got to think about, do I need to marry them up downstream? Am I going to pick the manual ones separately, pack them separately, send two boxes? There's some decisions to be made. And again, they may not be ideal for your current operation, but you're trying to lay some groundwork so that you have a robotic workforce for the next building, for the expansion buildings and so on. So it's you know, probably worth the time, but it's a little bit of an effort to invest. Okay? And then there's a couple of other things to think about, uh, depending upon the layout. Let's say you're going into a brownfield facility. I may have a human working at this station, another person over there where the uh, projector is, and conveyors on the outside of both of us. So if I put a robot there, and I have a person here, and the robot stack light goes on or there's some error, this person could pause what they're doing and possibly go over and deal with it. So on the first side over to the left there, we show person at a station, robot at a station, robot works autonomously most of the time, person occasionally stops what they're doing, helps the robot if needed. That's not the greatest scale though. What you'd rather have is something like to the right where you have the robot master, a person potentially at a command center or something that we, we, we have now for a fleet of robots. So I can be standing here with a screen monitoring five or 10 robots. And again, if they're going fast and, they're, and they have a low enough error rate, I may not have to walk over there much at all. Or I may have the robot and the warehouse software have some automated uh, exception handling processes. Uh, I may have things I can watch on a screen. I can say, hey, I got an alert from robot three that there's a problem. Let me watch a replay of what just happened. Because we have cameras, we have video there. And we say, oh, it failed for this reason. You push an error code button, and then, then the systems resolve it automatically from there. Maybe it flags the order. Maybe it flags the inventory tote for future uh, inspection. But the system can keep moving, right? You, can, you, can, uh, not, you don't have to stop the flow. And then related to that, OK, finally you say, I can't resolve it. There's a mechanical fault over there. So you pick up your pager or your phone or whatever tablet, and you say, hey, uh, Joe in maintenance, can you run over to robot three? see if you can resolve the problem, right? So you want to sort of cascade with direct human intervention at the robot. You know, as, these, as we scale these up, you kind of want that to be the last resort. You don't want to lead with that. And that's how you get the biggest uh, um, uh, scalability, the biggest payback and productivity. Because if it's done well, one person managing, let's say, four or five robots. Let's say four robots. It's not unimaginable. We're doing this today. So if the robot is matching the rate a person would have done, I'm now paying one FTE, getting four times the throughput. Again, I've got to account for the investment on the robots. They've got to pay for themselves. But you know, if I'm having a hard time finding enough people to stay and do the piece picking task, this is a way to scale it, again, with the automation helping out. Okay. And this is just another version of a similar idea. I may have four or five robots, the remote overseer, and one person handling the things that the robots can't pick. So in your solution design, again, I apologize. I, uh, somewhere in the last week, I said, oh, I got a couple of different slides I want to throw in there. And somehow we, we lost them in the transition here. We're showing a couple pie charts up there. I mentioned we could go through the master item SKU list and start to screen out what items are robot pickable and what aren't. So the pie chart to the left is showing robot pickable things, the one to the right is those that aren't. Now, in this example, we've chosen to make the ones that aren't a really, really tiny sliver. It may or may not be, right? I can't promise that. 
on the other side, there may be two or three classes of items. Uh, it's worth mentioning that the same item, let me see, I've got a phone here. So this item, if I put it in a bin and I put them all like this, it's a different type of pick, especially if I pack them real tight. So they're right up against one another. And you say, wow, for a system to perceive one item from another is hard. And then to get your fingers in there to grab it. If, I, if you pack the thing so thin and tight this way that it would be a two-handed grab for a person where you reach in with one hand, kind of pull the items out and slot one out so they don't all pop out, that's a really hard way to slot items in a tote for a robot to pick. On the other hand, if I stack the items like this in the tote, and now the robot looks down, there's a nice flat surface, can put suction and grab it with the fingers and move it along, right? So there will be some inbound and put away considerations. Even if an item is perfectly pickable by a robot, you can possibly pack it in ways that make it really hard for a robot. Again, to me the guideline is, if you look into the tote and say, oh, it's hard to tell where one item starts and one stops, or if you say, I'd have to use two hands to get one item out of there, that's gonna be really hard for almost every robot you, you can see today. And, and that's a really hard problem to solve, too. So that's why on the pie chart at the left, there were two, three colors. Some are things that are pickable in almost any orientation naturally. Some you may have to think about the slotting. And some you may have to, again, tape the bag shut if you want the robot to pick the thing versus leaving it so the bag can flop open. Okay. So we're just kind of progressing down. So a, a solution design with a piece-picking robot, again, starts again, that strategic thought process. Why are we doing this? Do we have the support? Have we thought about the integration and so on? And then let's look at our items and start thinking about how we would flow things through the building. If you don't think about it, the operations people are going to ask about it for sure. <laughs> okay. Now here's some examples. Okay. So you can take a piece-picking robot, you can marry it with an ASRS. Um, some of the things to ask about there is, can it pick from subdivided totes? That's harder than picking from a giant bin. You could work it with auto baggers. If you have a lot of singles orders, and they're things that can mail in a, in a bag or a, a, um, a mailer. Mobile robots, we have an exhibit here with Tompkins Robotics. Their mobile system is a, basically a sorter a modular robotic sorter, so you can sort items through it, kitting processes, traditional Bombay sorters, tilt sorters. In these videos, I think we don't show a barcode scanning step, but that's something we're doing at a number of sites today. So again, some warehouse processes, the picker doesn't need to scan a barcode, many they do. And you could try to recognize the object with a vision system. You could say, oh, I'm gonna train my software, to recognize the million SKUs you, you have. But boy, every year you add 10,000, 20,000, some are discontinued, some change. It's really hard to keep that up to date and be perfect, given that the items can be oriented any which way, right? Barcode scanning, however, may be unglamorous. And I know our suppliers of barcode scanners would hate to hear me say that. But it's not glamorous, but it works really well. So if the robot can pick the item up and you have two or three barcode scanners around and you capture a scan on the fly, and the robot system communicates to the WMS and says, I'm holding this barcode, what do you want me to do with it? Oh, that's for order number three. Put it in this box and confirm when you've done it. So instead of hitting a pick light, the robot sends a message back and says, I put it in order number three, I'm ready for the next task. Or scan the barcode, we get a digital input from the uh, sorter that an empty tray is coming by, 
I put that item on this tray as it goes by, and now you know that this uh, little controller thing is on that tray, and you can drop it down the right chute, right? So barcode scanning is uh, simple, is reliable, it's industrialized, there's every reason to use it. I think it's a few years before, uh, while uh, vision systems can recognize a lot of objects, I don't know that you can rely on it every day. If you said, I've got a step where being 70 or 80% right is good enough, it's helpful, that's probably fine. I think people can do that. If you need 99.9%, .9%, you don't want to ship the wrong item to a customer. You don't want to have it go flow downstream in your warehouse if it's the wrong item. Again, it causes a quality issue. It takes time and effort to resolve. You want to know right away if you've got the wrong thing. And barcode scanning is pretty darn good, really. Okay, next step, physical workspace. We've been focusing on, and again, most of the systems, the robot is in a fixed position, so you're limited by how far the arm can reach. There are some guys who are driving the arms around, um, and it's an interesting idea. I, I can tell you why we don't do it. There's probably two reasons. One is, once you go mobile, it's harder to see into shelves at all different heights than to look down into a bin that comes in a reliable, consistent position. That's one reason. The other one is, the arms are still relatively expensive. Though they've come down in cost over the years, just like a person walking a pick path, there's idle time where I'm not picking anything. So now if I drive the expensive arm around, there's times where it's going down the aisle not picking anything, I've taken a pretty expensive asset and I'm underutilizing it, right? So it impacts the payback math. So we, we looked at it quite a bit. We can't figure out a way for it to make sense yet or entirely. And so we kind of put that on the back burner. But once you say I'm going to fix the robot in space, you're limited by reach. So a station that might have been great for a person where, yeah, sometimes they take two steps over here to place an item or two steps over there, it works fine. The robot may not be able to reach the last tote. And that may affect a lot of other things, like how many shuttles you need in the shuttle system, how many open orders you need for people to be working on. So again, there's some thought process and decisions to be made. If you were then going to a greenfield warehouse design, you might set up the totes so that they're more radial than linear so that the robot could reach them, or there's other ideas. Maybe you have two tiers or something, I don't know. Uh, and then over here, if you want the robot to put items in a grocery bag, it's possible, but you probably can't ask the robot to open the grocery bag, okay? Uh, you you want to have the things presented in an easy way for the robot to set things inside. Because we do have customers ask us, can the robot build a box? Can the robot do a bunch of different things? And, and again, today it's hard to do all of that in any one robot. And I'm not sure I've seen uh, robots that do all those other tasks well at all. So there's, a, there's always some human element to think about. And, and again, your ergonomics, I was trying to coin a phrase of robonomics. No, that's the economics of robots. So robergonomics, robo I don't know. But thinking about what are the healthy ways for the robot to move in the workspace so they get the most done, uh, again, limited by reach and speed and so on. So here's some examples. A few uh, earlier, we saw the video of the integration with an OPEX uh, system. So there's the robot off to the left. Here's an overhead view. Uh, and this one's an interesting example. We put a, a pivot arm. So there's times where they said, hey, we want to go do inventory check or something. The robot doesn't know that workflow yet. So I need to be able to move the arm out of the way and have a person go up and do the work. OK, great. And it's got to be safe. And it's got to be uh, secure and all that. So with that, we could actually swing the arm 180 degrees out of the way and give plenty of clear space for the person to do the job. May not be the right answer everywhere, but here it was helpful. Um, you need some frames to hold the cameras that are going to look into the system. Sometimes they come uh, 
with the mechanism that's holding the arm. Obviously now if you want to swing and move the arm, you need a different frame to hold the cameras. So there are some workspace design things to work through. We show another example here where we put the robot arm kind of up over conveyors. Because again, you've got to get convey things in, convey things out. And depending upon how that layout works, it makes the most sense. You've got to find a position for the arm that's out of the way. Uh, we also look at use cases for how will someone get in if they have to service the arm, and so on and so forth. So if nothing else, uh, guys like us, if you're thinking about this, we'll probably help you walk through that thought process and to help develop use cases so that when the machine shows up in your facility and the first time the maintenance guy goes over and says, hey, how am I ever going to, you know, uh, you know, what if the airline uh, breaks and I need to go change something or fix it? And you say, oh, I didn't give you a path to get to it. You know, that's kind of a, that's a problem, right? It's a showstopper. So on the software side, pretty early on in our development, we said we need a clean API between ourselves and all the different types of warehouse software that one could uh, use. So we call it uh, uh, the mission control protocol. Why? Because I know I think our software guys thought that sounded really cool. You know? But it's an API. All right. And um, down at the bottom is the basic flowchart. We start a mission. Uh, we're told to pick an item. We may optionally be asked to get a barcode and report the barcode back to the host system. We then place the item. Again, we could place the one of several destinations based upon the information that's sent to us in the mission. Uh, and then we end the mission and send a confirmation. It's very similar to pick the light, put the light. Again, just replacing these messages with the actual physical touching of lights in the system. And then you think about, these are just some high level kind of first order exceptions. Um, maybe they send a mission and for whatever reason the, the um, uh, the fields, you know, something's jumbled, it doesn't make sense, we reject it. There's no item in the tote, we don't pick, we send a message, failed to pick, no item, uh, cannot ID, and so on and so forth. So again, it's one thing to have the messages, the system on the other side both has to receive and understand them, and then uh, whether it's a software uh, flow that has to, you know, proceed, okay, what do I do with the tote that just came? Do I kick it out? Uh, do I stop everything and send a person over? and then operationalizing it. Again, what's the human role, if any, in that process? So again, this requires a bit of dialogue, sometimes between us, a third-party warehouse software company, and the end customer user, which again, could be a, a group of stakeholders who care about what's gonna happen there. Okay, so this is kind of saying, hey, putting it all together, the pie chart down at the left was looking at some of the throughput rate questions, uh, you know, when are things working well, the, the orangest triangle that popped out there is the exceptions. How do you deal with them? When do you have a person? We had our item analysis that said some things are robot pickable and some aren't. So you put it all together. I now have an overseer. I have a human picking things that aren't good for robots to pick, and I have a fleet of robots. And there's the kind of the high-level schematic of a design. Um, and again, I had a little snippet up here. I apologize. And again, it's not that I'm just shilling for you to go over our booth, but we have a nice video at the booth. You know, we uh, did a project last fall with uh, uh, Paltac. Paltac's the largest wholesaler of consumer packaged goods in Japan. Multi-robot installation. It, it's a greenfield project, but this was after a good 12 or 18 months of joint development, working in the brownfield, kind of, kind of shaking out all the issues and problems one could have. So we have some videos in our booth that show what a multi-robot facility looks like with product flowing through it and everything. It's kind of cool. We're excited about it. Uh, and I apologize. I, I meant to have it in here, but uh, I had a little technical gaffe on my part. 
Um, so anyways, uh, at a high level, putting this all together, for many of you, you're going to say, hey, uh, Vince, Mr. Speaker, um, these are all the same kind of things we do for any automation project. Yes, I hope that's reassuring. On the, you know, on the downside, putting in a piece-picking robot is not zero work for the folks who want to buy one and use it in warehouses, right? Uh, on the bright side, every automation project you do roughly has the same steps. Why are we doing it? What do we think the payback is? Is it going to make a meaningful difference? And okay, who do we need to get buy-in from? Operations, IT, and uh, you know, maintenance, safety, and so on. Great. And and uh, oh, what is the items that we want to flow through that part of the building? You know, are they A movers, B, C, or D? Here it's a little different. It's dim weight and so on. But again, this is all hopefully by now you're saying, oh yeah, this is second nature. This isn't scary stuff. Uh, it's a little bit different, but uh, not dramatically so. So, you know, I'd like to encourage you to think ahead. Maybe it's not this year for everybody, and maybe it's not with us, I don't know. But we like to see more piece-picking machines used. We think there's applications. And certainly, at 2030, when I'm giving a talk here, <laughs> hopefully not, but anyways, if I am, uh, uh, you know, we'll say, wow, yeah, 2020, that was the year when, boom, you know, seven projects happened and four over in this part of the world. I mean, you know, there's, there's projects live in uh, even just us. Europe, Japan, US, uh, multi-robot, and there's other guys as well. So if you have any need or interest or you want to spread the word to colleagues, it's maybe not a project this year. But over the next couple of years, I think it's definitely worth a look. I'm slightly biased, but again, I, I, I wouldn't tell you to do it if I didn't think it made sense. And at the bottom, too, you know, getting data out of these systems, uh, you'll see different examples around. Some folks are farther along as they start to commercialize these. What kind of data comes out? Dashboards, analytics, what kind of command centers do you have? These become more important as you try to manage bigger and bigger fleets. All right. So thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Uh, open to questions if you'd like. If you want to send me a message, it's just Vince at righthandrobotics.com. And uh, I'll open the floor to questions if there are any. Thank you.